I want to welcome everybody to coming to the seminar called Cutting Edge Apologetics or Apologies. The name of this session is called Where Are All the Christian Apologists? Where Are All the Christian Apologists? I want to start with a word of prayer, then I'm going to break down this seminar, just show you some of the things that you can expect. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer right now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your grace and for this time where we can learn from your word and from your instruction. Ultimately, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. And so we pray and ask that you would lead us and guide us and instruct us with your eye. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to say this to you. You came to the right class, but you also came to the wrong class if this is only going to be the session that you're going to attend in this apologetic seminar. Uh, what we're going to be covering in this first session, we're going to be covering the spectrum of apologetics. And then in the second session, we're going to be covering questioning the questioner, disarming Pharisees and Sadducees. The third session, which is going to be very interesting, we're going to be covering lost biblical truths found in world religions. Lost biblical truths found in world religions. You're going to find the gospel story in Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism. And so this is going to be something that you want to attend to. However, if you can attend all three sessions, each one of these sessions is contingent upon the other session. And I promise you this, by the end of this session, you're going to walk away extremely blessed. Can you say amen to that? By the way, I also like an interactive group. I like amens. I like hallelujahs. You don't need to stand up and say praise the Lord. Well, if you want to, you can. But uh, we're going to have a question and answer session if time permits. There's also going to be a part where I'm going to ask for some feedback too. So I'm going to be needing you guys to pay attention and just to be following. All right? Well, we're going to begin. This name of this seminar is called Cutting Edge. Where are all the Christian apologists? Where are all the Christian apologists? You look in our world today. Our world today is just covered in darkness, right? And you look into the newspaper, for example, you will find all sorts of things when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Bible. Every wind of doctrine is being carried. I was reading the other day about a pastor in London, uh, for example, who has now said that he does not believe in the Bible. You'd ask him the question, wait, why are you still a pastor? But you see, this is the world that we live in today. All sorts of things are just being carried through, and all sorts of things are being preached. I always say this, everybody gets a sermon. It's just from where? Everyone gets a sermon, whether it's from the devil or whether it's from God. Everyone gets a sermon. And watch what the Bible says here in Isaiah 59, verse 14. Justice is turned away backward. Let me ask you a question. Is that true in our uh, today's culture, yes or no? I mean, you read the newspaper, or you read, well, you don't read the newspaper, you read Google front page, right? And you look on to the, the various news articles, you will find all sorts of things. You know what they say about our justice system? Our justice system is the best justice system you can afford. That's what they say about our justice system. Justice is turned away backward, and righteousness stands far off. This is the, the current state of society. Now watch what the Bible says is the reason for this. Justice is turned away backward, and righteousness stands far off. For truth has fallen in the what? in the streets. For truth has fallen in the streets. Why is justice turned away backwards? Why is righteousness stands, why is it standing afar off? Because the Bible makes it very clear. Because truth has fallen in the street. By the way, what is your definition of the word truth? Can anybody here give me a definition of the word truth? Say it again. Okay, John 17 verse 17. That means nothing to uh, someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible. 
All right, what does, sorry to embarrass you, by the way. I like doing that. Okay, um, what is your definition of the word truth? Now, he's quoting from John 17, verse 17, where Jesus says, Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. But to somebody else who knows nothing about the Bible, how would you define what truth is? How would you define what truth is? Okay, very good, very good. Anybody else? How would you define truth? Something you don't know to be a lie. Okay. Did you know, what did you say? Show them the false. Show them the false. Okay. Do you know the very definition, the very Greek word for truth is aletheia? Do you know what it means? That which is not hidden. That's what it actually means in its literal meaning. That which is not hidden. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. What is the truth that is most hidden in this world? The character of God. The character of God. And so the Bible makes it very clear right here. Justice is turned away backward and righteousness stands far off. Why? Because the truth of God is hidden in this world. Ellen White says, talking about when Jesus came to this earth, that gross darkness covered this earth. That the character of God was so hidden in this world. And the reason why this seminar is extremely important because we want to understand ways, methodologies in which we can further communicate the truth of God's word to this world. Amen? Now watch what else it says. And uprightness cannot enter. enter excuse me. Yes, truth is what? Lacking. And the Lord saw it and it displeased him. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, no one who intervenes on behalf of truth and right. God looks upon this world and he says, wait a second, how come there's nobody who's willing to stand up for the truth? And folks, this is why Christian apologetics is extremely important. Watch what Peter says right here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is sort of the, the calling card of Christian apologetics right here. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a what? Defense to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with what? Fear. The word defense is from the Greek word aplogia. Can you say that word with me? Aplogia. It's not apologia, it's aplogia. And the word aplogia means to give a courtroom defense. A courtroom defense. And what Peter is saying right here, he says, you need to give a very logical, a very precise defense, a reason of the things that you believe in. One of the reasons why people don't know the truth is because people don't know how to communicate the truth. And it's extremely important that we understand this. Not just understanding what we're communicating, but understanding the mind of the person that we're communicating to. You know, a lot of people, I was born and raised a Hindu, and about ten and a half years ago, I became a Christian. But let me just tell you something. I come across a lot of people who study Hinduism in order to reach Hindus. And you know what the, the problem is, is that they will come up to me and they said, you know, I've studied all this Hinduism and I can't reach a single Hindu person. You know what the problem is? They're not understanding how a Hindu thinks. They're not understanding how a Hindu thinks. They're understanding what a Hindu believes in, but they're not understanding how a Hindu thinks. And so apologetics helps us in this. But Peter makes it very clear to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, a lot of people, when it comes to apologetics, they will give you all sorts of reasons why apologetics is no good, why you shouldn't be talking about apologetics. I actually mentioned to a group of people who are also seminar speakers, and they said, you're talking about apologetics? And they went at it with me right then there, right there at that table. And I thought, wow, these are the misconceptions regarding apologetics. A lot of times you will hear things like this when it comes to apologetics. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. Now what's wrong with that statement? 
It's assuming that apologetics is arguing, but that of itself is an argument. Watch what else it says. Apologetics only caters to pride, you know. That's bad apologetics. Conversion is about the, in it's not about the intellect, it's about the what? Heart. Now let me ask you a question. What are you to love the Lord God with? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? It's not just the heart, it's the mind. It's not just the mind, it's the heart. You know, it's very interesting. I was going downstairs last night. You might have recognized or heard that last night where there was this Pentecostal preacher. Did you guys hear that Pentecostal preacher? I mean, she was just like, and the piano was just going and all this stuff. And I went there and I could not even think at all. And I was like, okay, I need to step out. You know, here's the thing. Christianity has become very emotional. Very emotional. Now, I know we need to avoid the other pitfall where it just becomes completely intellectual, and that's where Seventh-day Adventists do fall into, but we need to bring these two together, right? It's important that we understand not just the heartfelt reason, but we need to understand the intellect when it comes to the truth. And by the way, you know what Ellen White says? She says, it is the intellectual Christian who understands God the best. She says that. It is the intellectual Christian who understands Jesus the best. And so... We need to understand, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. That of itself is an argument. Apologetics only caters to pride, you know. That is only bad apologetics. And number three, conversion is not about the intellect, it's about the heart. Folks, that of itself is the greatest misconception when it comes to apologetics. C.S. Lewis said something. He was considered one of the world's greatest apologists. This is a powerful quote. The question of being an apologist is not so much whether you use an apologetic in answering someone's question, but whether the apologetic you already use is a good one. Everyone uses an apologetic. When someone says, why do you do the things that you do? What do you say? Well, you give them a reason. And folks, as Christian apologists, we need to understand, you can give a defense without being defensive, amen? And you can present an argument without being argumentative. That is what proper apologetics is all about. And so when it comes to these things, everyone presents an apologetic. Here's an apologetic about apologetics. Number one, familiarizing oneself with the most up-to-date material and communicating in a culturally relevant manner. You know, one of the things that really gets to me is sometimes our Seventh-day Adventist advertisements. You ever seen them? You look at them, and they have a picture of someone in bell-bottoms. You ever seen that before? Or you see somebody, I mean, he's got that hippie hair, and he's just there, and there's like, you know, they're in a, a field. It almost looks like a Bollywood movie, and they're there. And you can see these clothes are not, I mean, what's happening is that we're using old material, old cover-up to communicate these beautiful truths. So when it comes to apologetics, we need to use the most up-to-date material. We need to use scholarly work. We need to use powerful stuff and communicating in a culturally relevant manner. Sounds like what an Adventist is supposed to be. Being willing to engage in a variety of contexts, i.e. classrooms, public forums, churches, and personal settings. Personal settings. Apologetics is very useful in personal settings. Presenting information that removes intellectual barriers to beliefs. And ultimately, the goal is to lead individuals to the truth as it is in who? Jesus. If apologetics does not have this truth, it's not good apologetics. In fact, watch what the Bible says here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does the word sanctify mean? It means to what? Make room, right? Or set apart. Set apart God in your what? Hearts. Apologetics without Jesus is not good apologetics. Watch what Peter says right here. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, right? 
Now, when it comes to apologetics, folks, I want you to understand something. Apologetics is not about silencing the listener. Apologetics is not just about silencing the listener. You know, one of my friends, this is actually sometimes what it's necessary. One of my friends was actually teaching a course on apologetics. And what happened as he was talking, giving these arguments about God, and he was writing them on the chalkboard, somebody in the classroom, was one of the students, wanted to uh, get the teacher. And so he raised his hand and he said, teacher, I have, a, I have a question for you. And the teacher turns around and says, okay, what's the question? And he says this, can God make a mountain so big that he himself cannot move it? You've heard that before, right? Sounds like somebody took a semester of philosophy, right? And so the teacher said, that's not an important question. We'll deal with it later. And he continues writing. And the student says, no, you need to give me an answer for that. Can God make a mountain so big that he himself cannot move it? And so the teacher said, I'm not going to deal with that question. And he continued writing. And the student wanting to make that teacher look bad, he said again, can God make a mountain so big that he himself cannot move it? The teacher turns around and said, yes, he can. And you know what it is? It's called your heart. It's called your heart. And the student was silent. Now, is that going to be the case in apologetics all the time? No. That's not even the, the purpose of apologetics. Even when Jesus dealt with, you know, giving answers and questions for what he believed in, many times the listeners were silent. But folks, I want you to understand something. The purpose of apologetics ultimately is to lead people closer to Jesus. Amen? That is the purpose. By the way, does anybody know who this individual is? It's not Colonel Sanders. It's not Kellogg. It's Brother Hall right there. The name's up there. This is an individual by the name of Moses Hall. Can you say that name with me? Moses Hall. If you were to take this individual, he's obviously dead. And if you were to take this individual today and you would say, I'm going to place him in the church. I'm going to resurrect him, place him in the church right now. He'd probably be the top SDA Christian apologist. Let me tell you about this guy. This guy was so super sharp. He would actually enter into debates with spiritualists. Now you may say, wait a second now. Aren't debates bad? Let me finish, okay? He would enter into debates with spiritualists and he would utterly destroy them in their debates. He would study spiritualism, and he would use these arguments against them when the church was really budding. And Ellen White gives him like so much uh, commendation, but then she begins to give him warnings. She says, Brother Hall, if you're going to go to these debates, you need to make sure the other brethren are there. You know what happened? He stopped bringing the brethren with him. Ellen White continued to warn him, warn him and she said, the devil is targeting you. And she describes a vision she had where the devil was actually in conversation when it came to Brother Hall. And she said that he is targeting you. Be careful. He shows up at a debate. What happens is one day he's surrounded by spiritualists. They're just surrounding him in the debate. He gets very confused. And she says that the devil and his fallen angels were there. You know why the devil attacked him? You know why the devil went after him? Because of what he was speaking about. Spiritualism. You want to know what is the most uncomfortable sermons for me to preach? When I cover spiritualism. The devil does not want his deceptions exposed, especially for what he is planning in these last days. You know, and so Brother Hall began to, do, uh, began to preach on these things, and he began to attack them with the fervor that has not. His books are still around. But watch what, what she says to him. Brother Hall, God wants you to come nearer and nearer to him, where you can take hold of his strength and by living faith claim his salvation. If you were a devotional, godly man in the pulpit and out, a mighty influence would attend your preaching. You do not closely search your own heart. You have studied many works to make your discourses thorough, able, and pleasing. But you have neglected the greatest and most necessary study, the study of yourself. 
Watch what else she says. A thorough knowledge of yourself, meditation and prayer have come in as secondary things. Your success as a minister depends upon your keeping of your own heart. You will receive more strength by spending one hour each day in meditation and in mourning over your feelings and heart corruptions and pleading for God's pardoning love than you would by spending many hours and days in studying the most able authors and making yourself acquainted with every objection to our faith and with the most powerful evidences in its favor. Do you see what his problem was? It wasn't the fact that he was studying these books alone. It wasn't the fact that he was, he was finding the most powerful evidences of what we believe in. His problem was is that he was not spending an hour each day abiding in Christ. You see what the problem is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The problem was is that he was not incorporating the first part of that verse, which is what? Sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. Folks, I want to let you know this. Personally, when I'm studying apologetics, it can be dry. And unless I'm abiding with Christ, my experience begins to decay. So whatever you're studying, whether you're studying world religions, whether you're studying any subject, make sure each day you are spending an hour abiding in Christ. Can you say amen to that? And this is where this Christian apologist failed. He did not abide in Christ, and he himself eventually became a spiritualist. This is the problem. Folks, you need to abide in Christ, right? Amen? All right, a variety of apologetics. What we're going to do is we're going to go through a spectrum of apologetics, and in the next session, we're going to be dealing with questioning the questioner, how to deal with these questions that sometimes come at us, all right? A variety of apologetics. Self-defeating statements. We're going to be dealing with, first, number one, cultural apologetics. Cultural apologetics. You look in our culture today, what type of culture, what type of society, when it comes to our society, what do they call our society? A postmodern society, right? And what is postmodernism the backlash of? Does anybody know? Rational, rationalism. And you know what rationalism is the, the backlash of? The Roman Catholic system. People were so upset with this idea that, you know, these, these false theolith, uh, theistic assumptions about God and about the universe and about purgatory, all these things, that they actually moved away with it towards the enlightenment. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 11 in the book Great Controversy, talking about the, uh, the enlightenment. And what happened is, is that it became so irrational, so dry, it became so intellectual that people said, you know what? Where's the heart? And they move towards postmodernism. Postmodernism is basically the dynamics of society that consists, as one author said, no certainty, no meaning. So whatever you want to believe, go for it. You know, in fact, it was um, one author who said this. When it comes to postmodernism, language is not at the command of the author. Language is at the command of the reader. So therefore, what is stated objectively is no longer considered objective. So whatever you want to believe about it, go ahead. And you know, when it comes to this, when you even see language itself, if I was to say a certain word to you, right? What it meant 20 years ago is completely different. What if I said the word marriage to you? What will you say, this is what marriage is. It is a union of two people. But if I was to ask you that question 20 years ago, you know what you would tell me? It is a union between a man and woman. You know, last night I came home, or came back to the hotel, and I couldn't go to sleep till 2 o'clock. And I was like, I'm going to see if there's anything interesting on TV, like a, a documentary or the History Channel or whatever it is. I looked on, and there was a, I was watching the uh, news article, and there's this whole controversy right now about Burt and Ernie. You know about that, right? And what they're saying right now is that Burt and Ernie should get married. 
And uh, do you know who Burton Ernie is? We're talking about Sesame Street right here, okay? <laughs> okay, good. Generation Y. Why not? Okay, so um, here's the thing. So the, the controversy is right now, Bert and Ernie should get married. And the, the newscaster that was talking about it, he said, why not? Love is love. We need to teach it to our kids. Folks, do you see what's happened to language itself? The battle is being fought even on, on the, the borders of when it comes to what we say. So it's now whatever you want to believe in goes. And folks, I want you to understand something. This is very important. This is more than just an attack on human language. This is an attack on the word of God. In the beginning was the what? Word. And what does Peter say in 2 Peter? Scripture is of no private interpretation. Right? When it comes to this, the word of God, we, we interpret it through the Spirit's understanding. Amen? He himself is the one that tells us what it means. We can't just come up with our own interpretations. This is why it's extremely important to understand cultural apologetics. And we'll deal with some self-defeating statements. All right? Number one. When it comes to understanding a self-defeating statement, these are statements that are made all the time when it comes to religion or just ways of thinking, all right? A self-defeating statement is a statement that's defeated by its own claim or its own requirement. For example, if I was to say to you, I can't speak a word of English, is that a self-defeating statement? Why? Because I'm speaking in English to communicate this to you, right? In other words, the statement does not meet its own requirement. So if I was to say to you, there is no such thing as truth, what's wrong with that statement? Well, that statement is a statement of truth then, right? If there is no such thing as truth, then that statement is not true. And if that statement not, is not true, then there is such a thing as truth. You know, one day I was preaching an evangelistic series, and I preached on Daniel chapter 9. You know what Daniel chapter 9 is all about, right? You better if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, right? I preached on it. And I presented an airtight argument. And I noticed that one of the tables, there were some people that started getting into an argument at the very end of it. We had one of our elders there. And he's a math teacher, very intelligent, he used to be a pastor. And he was going back and forth with this guy. It must have been like, I think, a first-year philosophy student. They always show up, and I'm always attracting them for some reason. And so I walked over there at the very end, felt impressed to go over there. And I began talking to this individual. And he stands up and he says, you know what? He says this. I see what you presented, but I don't believe in truth. I don't believe there's such a thing as truth. And I said, okay, first-year philosophy student. All right. I said, well, I said, you know, do you believe that statement to be true? And he said, okay, that's good. You got me there. And he continued arguing with me, okay? He continued arguing with me, okay? And then he switched his argument. And you know what? I don't like getting into these sort of confrontations, but sometimes it's necessary. And you'll see why at the very end of it. So he continues talking, and he's like, you know what? In fact, I believe there's many truths. And when a person states, I, I know that's Hinduism talking right there. And I said, do you know the difference between dialectic logic and the law of non-contradiction? And he says, yes, I do. And I said, what you're presenting is dialectic logic, the idea that there can be multiple truths, each one contradicting each other. And then he said, he said so? And I said, so you're telling me that is the correct way of thinking. It's either this or it's not. He said, yes. I said, right now you've just demonstrated the law of non-contradiction. And you know what happened? He said, you got me there. And I said, let's go outside. He continued arguing with me, okay? And I just kept silent. And I was like, okay, I'm going to wait. And he's talking about it, and it finally came out. This is what I was waiting for, folks. This is exactly what I was waiting for. He then said to me, you know what? And this whole thing about God, I'm just, I don't believe in him. And I said, really? You don't believe in him? He said, like, I don't believe in God whatsoever. And he continued talking, and he says, and you know what? I'm mad at him. And I said, you stop right there. I said, how, do you, how are you mad at someone you don't believe in? 
and here's the thing. This is, I was not just trying to get an argument. There was one thing I was waiting for, and it was coming out. It was coming out. The real reasons. The heart reasons. And as we continued to talk, it finally came out. And he says, you don't understand. I go, what, I, what is it that I don't understand? He said, I used to be a Christian. And he said, I used, to, I used to go to church. I went to Calvary Chapel. I had guys like Josh McDowell showed up at our church and he presented all the reasons for Christ and all these things for the Bible. And he says, you know what, but I stopped believing God. I go, why'd you stop believing him? He's like, because I found out my dad was a homosexual. And he says, I know what the Bible says. It condemns homosexuality. And my, the Bible teaches that my dad's going to go to hell. And he just began to get irate and he just began to let it all out. And I said, this is exactly what I was waiting for. And then I stopped and I said, Who's condemned him? He said, the Bible has. I said, the Bible condemns homosexuality, but you've condemned him. You've already written him off. You don't think there's any hope for him. I said, the problem is not just your dad. The problem is you and your unbelief. And he just was there. Pin drop silence. I said, this is the real issue. It has to do with your heart. You don't trust God right now. And we continued talking. He walked over to his car. It was at night. I mean, we talked for hours. And the stars were out, and he was standing by his car, and I walked away. And he said, let me ask you one question as I was walking away. He said, why don't you come up to me? I turned around, and I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And I continued walking, and I was like, wow, that is so dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was so dramatic. I mean, it was just like, wow. I mean, it was just one of those things that you just hear about. But it was totally a God-led moment, and he just smiled, got in his car. And he came to church a few times. I want you to understand something. There is a need for apologetics. Amen? There is a need for apologetics, and we need to understand something. Some basic self-defeating statements. So I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to need some feedback right now. Are you ready for this? All truth is relative. Why is that a self-defeating statement? Because if all truth is relative, then that statement itself would be relative. That's why it would be a self-defeating statement. All right, how about this? There are no absolutes. You would say, are you absolutely sure? Right? That is why that is a self-defeating statement. All right, how about this one? It's true for you, but not for me. It's true for you and not for me. You know what you say to somebody like that? You say, take that to the bank. If you go to the bank and you say, hey, I need to take out $5,000, and they say to you, well, you only have 49 cents in your account. You know what they would say to you? Or what you would say to them? You would say, well, that's true for me, but not for you. You'd still walk out of there with only 49 cents. <laughs> right? These are self-defeating statements, and folks, we need to be aware of them because they're constantly used at, by, at the doors, right? How about this one? You should doubt everything. Only science can give us the truth. You shouldn't judge. Well, that statement is a statement of judgment, right? And by the way, there are two types of judgments listed in Scripture. Jesus talked about two types of judgments. What are they? Judge not lest you be what? Judge first, right? In other words, do not condemn someone to hell. The other one is judge righteous judgment. Do you know what judge righteous judgment is? Make a difference between right and wrong. We use judgment every single day of our lives. You made a judgment to come here. So if you, <laughs> I think that was a wise judgment. <laughs> okay, but folks, I want you to understand something. You, these are self-defeating statements that are used all over. And you just need to make sure that you help people to understand these things, okay? That what they're saying is not making any sense. All right, that's just your view. Well, that's your view, believing that this is just my view. So, folks, do you see why these are self-defeating statements? Does that make sense, yes or no? 
This is just the very basic of apologetics, okay? Cultural apologetics. All right, let's get into quick Bible apologetics. Let's map this out. Manuscripts, archaeology, and prophetic. If I was to ask you, and in th- why, do you re- why do you believe the Bible? You would have to give me a reason in three minutes. Why do you believe the Bible? And folks, you can't just say to yourself the, the classic answer, because my mom taught me always to, or because it's true. Do you see why that's circular reasoning right there? It's true. Well, let's think about this. Manuscripts, this is very important. Right now, there's been so much scholarship done on the Bible. When it comes to manuscripts, there are more manuscripts to prove the scriptures like, than any other ancient document. Did you know for the New Testament alone, there's over 24,000? 24,000. Over 24,000. By the way, do you know if they were to get rid of every single Bible, they'd be able to reproduce the New Testament? Do you know how? By the writings of the first century and second century disciples. In other words, the disciples of the disciples had written so many commentaries about the scriptures that they would be able to reproduce the entire New Testament from their writings alone except for eight verses. So even if you were to get rid of all the the Bibles that now exist, they would be able to take those writings and put them together and be able to reproduce the entire New Testament. Can you say amen to that? More than 24,000 documents. When you're presenting this, this is extremely important, okay? Because when it comes to, to, uh, to saying whether or not a, a document is historically, historically accurate, what matters is amount of manuscripts or copies that exist. Archaeology. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. By the way, Ron Gluick, Dr. Ron Gluick, he wrote in the book called Rivers in the Desert. You can mark this down. He said something very important about archaeology. He said this. When it comes to biblical archaeology, not only has archaeology confirmed the Bible, but the Bible itself has been used to locate archaeology. Can you say amen to that? So when you look at manuscripts, when you look at archaeology, the last and most important thing is to present the prophetic. When it comes to the prophetic, you are showing that this document, this ancient piece of literature, is more than just something that is man-made. It is God-made. Can you say amen to that? And this is so important because when you present these reasons, when you're presenting this supernatural reasoning, this is, it, it links people to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know why? Because ingrained in the Seventh-day Adventist message is prophecy. It's prophecy. And when you present prophecy, it blows people away. And by the way, Ellen White says that prophecy is the greatest validity of the scriptures. Prophecy. Prophecy. Can you say amen to that? I hope you guys better be able to give a Daniel 2 presentation right off the bat, right? Amen? All right. You may, one day we may call you up and say, all right, give me Daniel chapter 2. All right. When it comes to different types of apologetics, we also need to understand. We're dealing with cultural apologetics. We did it with quick Bible apologetics. Now, when it comes to presenting our faith, this is extremely important because, as one preacher said, any stigma can lick a good dogma. Amen? There's a lot of truths that we possess as Seventh-day Adventists that have been maligned by the world. These are not original truths that we have. You know this, right? Besides the sanctuary teaching, these aren't truths that we just sort of came up with. These are truths that have existed well before there was a single Seventh-day Adventist church. Did you know that? Let's talk about this right now. When it comes to the state of the dead, well, did we just come up with it? Well, did you know that Martin Luther actually believed in the state of the dead as well? And so when you're talking about the state of the dead, and you're talking to somebody, and then you're attaching it to somebody like Martin Luther, the argument becomes even more powerful. Oh, Martin Luther? We believe in Martin Luther, right? 
Well, that's exactly right. Martin Luther believed in the state of the dead. Watch what he says right here. It is probable, in my opinion, that with very few exceptions, indeed, the dead sleep in utter insensibility till the day of judgment. This is what he said. He believed in the state of the dead. Watch what else. I never forgot. One day I was, this is just, this is just a side note, I was, um, I was knocking on some doors. I was a, a call porter several, several years ago, many moons ago. And uh, I, I met somebody at the door, and she said, I'm a Lutheran. I said, you're a Lutheran? She said, yes. And I said, let me show you a book. And I showed her the great controversy, and I said, look at this chapter about Martin Luther. She's like, did you say Martin Luther? I said, yes. And she's like, hold on one second. And she came out with her friend, and they were very ecstatic. And she comes out, and she said, righteousness by faith, amen? And she comes out just like that. And I said, amen, sister. And they ended up buying that book. They were so excited about Martin Luther. It was just very interesting. So Martin Luther says this when it comes to the uh, state of the dead. Solomon judges that the dead are asleep and feel nothing at all. So when you're presenting the state of the dead and you attach it to somebody as credible as Martin Luther, all of a sudden the argument becomes even more powerful because they realize that, wait a second, this isn't just something believed in a corner. There are credible people who have believed this. How about William Tyndale? Watch what he says. And he putting them, the departed souls, in hell, heaven, and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul proved the resurrection. And again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they not be in good case as the angels. And then what cause is there of a resurrection? William Tyndale believed. God's outlaw believed in the uh, state of the dead. Okay, how about this? When it comes to William Miller, when it comes to William Miller, Watch what Ellen White says here. It's very interesting. In the Southern Watchman, January 24, 1905. Through the labors, Mrs. White wrote once, of William Miller and many others in America, of 700 ministers in England, of Bengal, and others in Germany, of Gossen, and his followers in France and Switzerland, of many ministers in Scandinavia, of a converted Jesuit, that's a converted Jesuit, in South America, and of Dr. Joseph Wolfe, in many Oriental and African countries, the Advent message was carried to a large part of the habitable globe. It wasn't just William Miller, by the way, that came up with this 1844 uh, teaching. Did you know that? It was not William Miller alone. At the same time that William Miller, actually before William Miller, there was a man by the name of Joseph, Dr. Joseph Wolfe and Manuel Lacunza, a Jesuit priest who began studying the uh, book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and became convinced that something big was going to happen. Dr. Joseph, Joseph Wolfe actually predicted the second coming would take place in 1847. He told all of Europe and much of Asia. Manuel Lacunza dealt with South America and William Miller dealt with America. And when Joseph Wolf came to America, he was surprised and shocked. They were saying the exact same things. Folks, I want you to understand something. These are not truths that are believed only by Seventh-day Adventists. Amen? God does not isolate truth. And by the way, it says in Acts chapter 10, any nation that works righteousness is accepted with him. Any nation that works righteousness is accepted with him. And by the way, that's very important for you to come to the third seminar. I'm just giving an advertisement. I used to be a call porter. All right, how about the Sabbath? This is extremely important right here. The Sabbath right here, all right? Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? Well, you show them all the reasoning from Scripture, but wait a second. What is something you can use when it comes to presenting the Sabbath? It's this. Did you know that when Catholic missionaries actually showed up in Ethiopia, they found churches keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath? They actually started persecuting them. 
You can read about this in the rise and fall by uh, Cardinal Gibbons. Watch what he says right here. Encompassed on all sides by the enemies of their religion, the Ethiopians slept near a thousand years forgetful of the world by whom they were forgotten. After six great discoveries of the 15th and 16th centuries, they became known again to the Christian world. They were found observing the ancient Sabbath. And by the way, do you know why they would be observing the Sabbath? Philip the Ethiopian eunuch. He went back to Ethiopia, gave the gospel. They all believed in the Sabbath. And also when these Catholics, we have documents, by the way, Samuel Bakioki has many documents that he got. You can read about in from uh, Saturday to Sunday. You can read about these documents there. And he describes when Catholic missionaries actually show up, they began forcing these Ethiopians to stop keeping Sabbath. They took the king of Ethiopia, put him on the stand, and watch what he said when they said, wait a second, why do you believe in the seventh-day Sabbath? And watch what he says, because God, after he finished the creation, a little rested therein. Which day, as God would have called it from the holy holies, holy of holies, so the not celebrating thereof of great honor and devotion seems to be plainly contrary to God's will and precept, who will suffer heaven and earth to pass away. And by the way, where is he quoting from? Matthew chapter 5, verse... Excellent. Verse 17, to pass away sooner than his word. And that especially since Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. It is not therefore an imitation to the Jews, but in obedience to Christ and his holy apostles that we observe that day. They put him on the stand. You know what happened? They eventually persecuted them to the point where this king bended the knee and he says, all right, no more keeping the Sabbath. They started keeping Sunday as a result of it. This is important to understand. Because it lets you know that there is a world that existed undiluted by Catholic influences that was kept quiet for a thousand years. And by the way, you know what I read today, Isaiah? I believe it's verse chapter 49. It says this, talking about the prophecies of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia would quickly stretch out her hand to God. She was quick to stretch out her hand to God. Folks, apologetics is extremely important. This is getting into the historical uh, reasons for what we believe in. Amen? How about the SDA church when it comes to before the SDA church regarding the Sabbath again? How about uh, when it comes to the four-leaf clover, right? You think the four-leaf clover, what is that talking about? What day is very special and synonymous with the four-leaf clover? St. Patrick's Day, right? Do you know many people believe that he himself was a Sabbath keeper? Here's the reasoning behind that. The, Cel the Celts used a Latin Bible unlike the Vulgate and kept Saturday as a day of rest with special religious services on Sunday. They kept the Sabbath holy. Watch what else it says. It seems to have been customary in the Celtic churches of the early times in Ireland as well as Scotland to keep Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, as a day of rest from labor. They obeyed the fourth commandment literally upon the seventh day of the week. This was the time that Patrick was alive. And the other, the other saint, Columba, which is well known. And when you take a look at this, these men were keeping the biblical Sabbath. Folks, I want you to understand something. The Sabbath day is not a seventh day on its truth. It's a biblical truth. Amen? These truths have existed even before there was a Seventh-day Adventist church. How about relevant issues in apologetics? Who's this guy right here? What's his name? Rob Bell, right? You ever seen those Norma videos? You ever seen those videos before? Right? And he's got his glasses on. He'll be like, he'll be like, he'll be saying something. You really don't know what he's saying until the very end. And he, he's sort of these short videos that were made for youth groups and all sorts of things, right? But recently he started controversy. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And in this book, he talks about how ultimately that there will not be this eternal burning torment that God will eventually let everybody into heaven. 
it caused so much controversy. They started calling him a heretic. All these evangelicals started saying, this guy is a heretic. All the Christian apologists actually jumped on him and said, he's a heretic. He's saying all sorts of things. But folks, did you know he was prophesied by Ellen White? You hear what I just said? He was prophesied by Ellen White. You said he was prophesied by Ellen White? Yeah. Did Ellen White talk about a guy who would show up with square glasses and, you know, doing weird things like that? She actually talked about the people like him who would come. Watch what she says right here. Talking about eternal torment, that doctrine. A large class to whom the doctrine of eternal torment is revolting are driven to the opposite error. They see that the scriptures represent God as a being of love and compassion, and they cannot believe that he will consign his creatures to the fires of an eternal burning hell. But holding that the soul is naturally immortal, they see no alternative but to conclude that all mankind will be finally saved. Many regard the threatenings of the Bible as designed merely to frighten men into obedience and not to be literally fulfilled. It's one group of people who will say, wait a second, God's going to burn people for hell for all of eternity. And then you have another group of people who say, wait just a second, that's incompatible with the character of God. They scratch their head, they don't know what to do. They said, wait a second, Maybe he's not going to burn everybody for all of eternity. Maybe he's going to save everybody. And that's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. Folks, I want you to understand something. We have the best view, the most scriptural, most clear view when it comes to the teaching of hellfire. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. The Bible is very clear. But did you know there are credible scholars who believe this too? Like who? F.F. Bruce. Do you know who he is? F.F. Roofs is a, a major New Testament theologian, okay? He actually died, but he wrote annihilation. That's, in other words, the wicked will burn for a certain duration, but we put out. It's called annihilation, a, a finality. He says this, Annihilation is certainly an acceptable interpretation of the relevant New Testament passages. Eternal conscious torment is incompatible with the revealed character of God. How about this one? Does anybody know who John Stott is? He's a well-known theologian, still alive, well-known in the Christian apologetics. I do not dogmatize about the position to which I have come. I hold it tentatively. I believe, the ultimate, I believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically-founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe in annihilation. But you see these great many theologians who are saying, wait a second, when I'm looking at the scriptures, when I'm looking at what the Bible is teaching, it seems that this is what it's saying. John Winham. Do you know why John Winham is extremely important? John Winham wrote the book called Essentials of New Testament Greek. If you've taken a Greek class, this is standardized textbook, textbooks that's used. Look what he says. He died, but this is interesting. I feel that the time has come when I must declare my mind honestly. I believe that the endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should be happy, indeed, be happy if, before I die, I could help in sweeping it away. Can you say amen to that? Most of all, I should rejoice to see a number of the theologians joining in researching this great topic. Amen. Does anybody know who this individual is? But I notice that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea, not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That the lost soul is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude, we cannot doubt. But whether this etern eternal fixity implies endless duration or duration at all, we cannot say. Guess who said this? C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this. He questioned. He questioned it. 
Folks, do you realize how powerful this is when you're presenting these things? These are credible, well-known people who hold into these beliefs. And apologetics is about bringing these things out and showing us what, what the, the truth of Scripture is all about. Can you say amen to that? I love what this prayer is, and I want to end with this. From the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from laziness that is content with half-truth, and from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, O God of truth, deliver us. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this class. It's been exciting, but we've just scratched the surface about surface when it comes to Christian apologetics. Lord, as we get into the next two sessions, we want to pray and ask for your spirit to lead powerfully. Thank you so much, Jesus, for these evidences of confirming what we believe in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.